The following is a hoop ball presentation. Okie dokie. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to Friday's Fantasy NBA Today. It's, of course, the Friday and weekend edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bespris, and this is, as has been the case for the last six? What did I... I forget what I come up came up with. I think this is the end of the sixth week of the fantasy offseason. We are almost into July. We will be by the end of next week, and that's pretty cool because normal years, that would be free agency. This year, it'll be the finals. Uh, we'll still be in the conference finals. Finals shortly thereafter. The draft, which you guys know me. I don't know anything about. And then free agency at the beginning of August. The ramp-up is almost upon us, folks. I, I think... I think free agency is sort of, at least in my mind, that's the official start to the ramp towards the next season. We're in, we're still in ramp down mode right now, but we've almost leveled off. The leveling off point for me is during the finals. That's where I think a lot of people really tune it out, unless you're like a pretty hardcore fan of the teams in the finals. I guess a lot of folks just love watching basketball. I will, but... We're a, we're a rare breed, I think, the degenerates here of, of the fantasy NBA community. We're watching everything, anything we can get our, our, our grubby little mitts on. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. I hope that you will, for a number of reasons, most notably of late. All of the free stuff on the betting side that we've been doing this week has been coming up gold, Jerry. It's gold. We went back to the well yesterday with the under in Phoenix and L.A., and it hit again. Buck 98 was the final total in that ballgame. Way, way, way under the posted total of 221. Now, I want to spend a bunch of time on today's podcast talking about the two series in question. I also had another thought of something fun we could do for maybe five to ten minutes towards the end of the show. But before I dive into any of that stuff, a quick reminder, uh, HoopBall is hoop-ball.com. That's the website. We will be having some interesting promo stuff going on over at HoopBall starting probably the end of next week, if I had to guess. So keep your ears to the ground for that note. We'll talk about it on this podcast. Shout out once again to the great William Harris for debuting the newest HoopBall podcast at the beginning of this week, the All Rookie Podcast. You guys are going to want to get down on that because the draft is coming up and I can't help you there. His latest episode was with uh, Ben Harrison, one of the hosts of our Hoopball Raptors podcast, talking about the Raptors' fourth pick, talking about the top 14 in the upcoming draft. It's close, man. Draft is right around the corner. So check out the All Rookie podcast. If you listen to this show and you're like, Dan, I love your fantasy advice. We win together every year, but damn it, you never talk about any of the young guys. Well, guess what? We got the yang to my yin now. So again, shout out to William Harris. Check out the all-rookie podcast. And manscaped.com, you guys know the drill. Hoopball20 is the promo code there for 20% off and free shipping on your order. By the way, continue to hit me up if you guys want to start a podcast. 
telling you right now. I've got this. I've got a bee in my bonnet. I got a bug in my whatever. It's I'm all I'm all fritzed out about this whole thing. I want to make this happen. I want I want Hoopball's first non-sports podcast, and I want it now. Now, admittedly, we probably are not the greatest conduit to a non-sports audience. I know that. But I don't care, because I think it'd be fun, damn it. And if you want to make something special, whatever it might be, hit me up at Dan Vespers. At Dan Vespers, just say, I want to do something special. Piecemeal that sucker together. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Phoenix and the Clippers because the Clippers came back with a 106-92 victory. The Suns got Chris Paul back, and there was a weird line yesterday. We talked about it on the podcast. I said, man, I really, like, every fiber of my being wanted to put money on Phoenix minus one, but there was a weirdness to it that I didn't fully understand how people were betting this. Was it the Clippers have to get one or the Suns have won both and they just got Chris Paul back? And I think that was probably more the theme. But, as we also mentioned on yesterday's podcast, there was a question mark as to how rusty might Chris Paul be after not playing basketball for about two weeks. And the answer was very rusty. 26% shooting. That, I, you know, I didn't, maybe I should have looked this up before doing the podcast because, you know, my job. <laughs> laziness factor. I think that might have been his worst shooting game of the year, regular or postseason. But there's probably some game in there where he took like six shots and made two of them. Well, that would actually be a better percentage. Five out of 19 yesterday for Chris Paul, Thursday. You guys might be listening to this over the weekend. Is 26.3%. I'm just going to quickly scan the regular season to see if... Just at a, a wild glance. Oh, there you go. February 22nd in Portland, or against Portland, he went one for nine shooting. He had a one for four in there against the Lakers, but I'm not counting that one because, again, four shots. Okay, so we got that one for nine. Ah, uh, two for 10 at Indiana. There you go. That's only 20%. See a 27% in there. Two for eight. Eh. Fair. I, whatever. I mean, it was a... Yeah, fine. We'll count it. We'll count it. And um, I think that's it. I think that's it. And then certainly as as higher volume games goes, 5 out of 19 was his worst of the year. The, I think the 1 for 9 is the only one you could make the argument was a worse performance in a basketball game. Take of that what you will. I would venture to say Chris Paul probably looks a lot better tomorrow assuming, again, you guys are listening to this show on Friday, tomorrow on Saturday's game, where the Suns are once again favored by one, and they're finally now bringing the total down, little by little, to 18.5. So let's assume that the Suns are not so, well, terrible offensively. There's been a couple of themes in this series so far. The Clippers have taken more free throws and had hit more three-pointers in each game to this point. Clippers have also, and this is almost a little borderline weird, the Clippers have played almost the exact same ball game three games in a row. The first one, they put up 114 points because they made a few extra three-pointers. But from an actual how-did-the-game-go standpoint, in game one of this series, Clippers lost 120-114, to 
They took 88 shots, had nine turnovers, and attempted 17 free throws. So just some very fuzzy math. I mean, we're, we're very fuzzy mathing this one. Put them about 105, 106 possessions in that ballgame. This is, you know, discounting any and one free throws. That's assuming every free throw is half a possession. Just, just roll with me on this. I know it's not, enti- it's not perfectly accurate, but just roll with me on it. So about 105 possessions, they overachieved because of all of the three-pointers, but they shot 45.5%, 17 free throws, nine turnovers. Game two, Clippers scored 103 points, shooting 45%, so a half a percentage point lower. Only 13 three-pointers, 24 free throws, but again, only eight turnovers. So again, pretty damn close. Uh, This one around 100 possessions, so just a little bit slower of a pace in game two. In Game 3 on Thursday night, when the Clippers put up 106 points, they once again shot 45% with 24 free throws and 11 turnovers. So a couple extra turnovers. This once again put their total number of possessions, fuzzy mathing it, at, you guessed it, 105. The Clippers have been about as predictable as any team on the planet through these first three games, despite... A change in venue between games two and game three. I would argue the only thing that really changed between two and three is that they played better defense in game three and got a little lucky in game three because the Suns' role players were actually quite good in the game last night. It was the Stars that were bad. Devin Booker and Chris Paul were both pretty damn clunky in that game on Thursday night. Okay, so what does that mean for us betting into this series? Well, Phoenix has been a little bit less predictable. In the first game, they shot 55% on only about 100 possessions. So, uh, again, the possession battle was relatively low, and that's why, in looking at it, they overachieved by a solid 20 points in a slow ball game, and it's why I liked the under in Game 2. So then you turn the page to Game 2, where Phoenix scored 104 points, Yeah, they didn't shoot 55% again, but still 49%, which is pretty good. Not a ton of turnovers, not a ton of free throws, which has kind of been a thing for the Suns so far in this series. And that upped their total number of possessions ever so slightly in Game 2 to about 102 instead of 100. And they pretty much went right on their number in that one. Game 3, the kind of offensive fall-apart game, Phoenix shot just 39% on what should have been about 106 or so possessions. So a little bit faster, a little bit more like game one, actually, than game two. And some of that is missed shots. There's, there is a pace correlation where if teams are making buckets, there's just less transition. But, you know, made bucket begets half-court offense going the other direction. So sometimes you're going to have two teams shooting the ball really well, and it's going to artificially deflate the number of possessions, where on the other side you might have teams shooting really poorly that can artificially inflate the number of possessions because a team can get a long rebound and get out and run, get a shot up a little bit quicker. As it turns out, Clippers did out-rebound the Suns in that ballgame last night, not surprisingly because... When one team shoots 39% from the field, presumably the other one's going to have a lot of opportunities to clean the glass. Ivica Zubats had a good ball game at long last in the playoffs. In fact, our own uh, Jonathan Martinez on the Hoopball Gaming team put out a Zubats to double-double prop at plus 410 
that hit by halftime last night. Kudos, golf clap for Mr. Martinez. That was a that was a ballsy call and a big winner at Hoopball Gaming, by the way. Going to follow those guys over there. Okay, let's take all this data we've wrapped up into a delightful little package and say, okay, well, how much did Phoenix truly underachieve in that ballgame last night? And do we still have the kind of wiggle room we wanted to before? The answer is, well, they underachieved by a pretty good number. Clippers were almost spot on the money. Again, that's just how they've been in this series so far. They are playing at a very average offensive pace without Kawhi Leonard. They need, because Paul George isn't hitting all of his shots, he looks tired, they're needing defense to win ballgames. You can see that they're pretty focused on that end. Although at the same time, if the Suns hit a few, like, there's only so much that the Clippers can do that other teams maybe have tried to but didn't. Now, again, it's not like the Clippers are blowing the roof off the building. That was not a super impressive performance on Thursday night, but the Suns were bad enough that it kind of made it look better, almost. Yes, 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 yes. The Clippers' defense was better. It's improved in each game of the series so far. Uh, But Chris Paul's not shooting 26%. I don't care what you're doing with him. He's going to get to his spot, especially if you're going to play Zubat's 33 minutes. He's going to get a switch, and he's going to get his shot. He just didn't make them. He didn't make them. Handicapping game four is a bit simplistic, but it comes down to whether or not Chris Paul makes his shots. Yesterday's game went under the posted total by 23 points, so there's a fair bit of wiggle room there. They adjusted the total down by three. So, again, you're still talking about 20 as the space in between. But let me remind you once again, the Clippers underachieved by 14 or 15 points, sorry, the Suns, to an average offensive performance. And once again, I should remind all of you that in the first two games of this series, the Suns actually overperformed the pace by a ton in the first game and by a bucket in the second game. So if they even overperform by a bucket in game four, where if, again, if each team's expected pace is in that 106 range, that's 212 altogether, you don't have a lot of wiggle room. You got to hope that it's another bad shooting game. I loved the under one. I thought we had like 10 points to work with. And the pace was seemingly slowing down in Game 2. But the Clippers want to run a little bit more than the Suns do. They're back on their home court, so they will steer that pace a little bit. Uh, and I'm a little bit afraid, I think, of going back to the well in that ball game tomorrow. I, I would lean ever so slightly to Phoenix. I think that they come back roaring. I think you see the shots drop for at least one of the superstars. Uh, and they're, they're, sad. they're a better team. They're a better team than the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. This would have been a great series if both teams came in at full strength. They didn't. Chris Paul came back first, rusty as hell. But I didn't. I mean, I would venture to guess that he shook off the cobwebs. That those slow nights for CP3, they generally don't last for more than a night. We'll see how it goes. I don't have the faith in the Clippers in this series that I did in the first two. Figured the Clippers would beat the the Mavericks 
when they went down 0-2, there was a, I admit, there was a some hesitation there. Like, whoa, what the hell happened? What, what's going on here? The Jazz series, I was not really worried. I wasn't really worried even a little bit in that one. That one felt like it was always going to tip the Clippers' way. Until Kawhi Leonard went down, I thought, oh And then they won it anyway, which that was the part that surprised me in the second, the, uh, second round for the Clips. But... You know, game one of that series was just a massive energy advantage for Utah. Game two, the Jazz had their big three-point shooting game. You knew that was going to come at some point. So there really wasn't... You didn't get a good look at that series until game three, and the Clippers looked like the vastly superior team when they were awake and Utah wasn't having an anomaly-level shooting night. I know they were a good three-point shooting team, but you kind of... It's, again, you live and die by the sword a little bit, and... Every once in a while, they're going to have those games where they are fully unbeatable. You could do anything, and it wouldn't matter. But those are the exception. Most of the, I mean, numbers are an average because it averages out. And if a team shoots like 60% for a night, probably not going to shoot 60% the next night. You're probably going to get a 44 blended in there, even from a good offensive team. Especially if it's a lot of jump shots. But this one, I don't think, has quite the same feel. Phoenix is a different monster. They have a lot of different ways they can attack you. They have the perimeter. They have the mid-range. They have the ability to get near the rim. You, we need to see them shoot some more free throws. That's that's troublesome. Clippers are defending without fouling right now. Uh, and if Phoenix can figure out a way to get to the line, then it's full-on over. As it stands right now, they haven't really quite solved that part. But getting Chris Paul back into the mix... That will not hurt, at least when he's no longer rusty. The other series uh, picks up in a few hours from now. Atlanta in Milwaukee. Bucks favored by eight again, despite the Hawks beating Milwaukee straight up in the opener of this series on Wednesday. I mean, I get it. I get, we, I feel like we're recycling handicapping from game one of this series. I think there's going to be an expectation that the Hawks will be satisfied with getting the one game. I don't think they're in that mindset anymore. That might have been the way things were operating early on in for the Hawks in their playoff run, not in any one particular series. Like, they got the first one in New York, and then maybe they eased off the accelerator a little bit, figuring, okay, great, we got home court, cool. And then in the second one, it seemed like Philly sort of began to stomp them, and then... The 76ers had a mental breakdown. But the Hawks now are two rounds into this thing. They're not afraid to go whole hog on any given night. I will say this. This is a game I think I would prefer to in-game bet, live wager. And the reason is, is quite simple. The reason is, I don't trust the Milwaukee Bucks to make the obvious adjustment quickly. And the obvious adjustment is that Brooke Lopez can't even play 20 minutes. He can't play 20 minutes. He's going to get put in a pick and roll every single time. And the Bucks don't switch everything with their big man. They put him into drop coverage and so then other guys are scrambling. Or if they switch it up and Brooke Lopez is out there trying to guard Trey Young on the perimeter, he's going to get roasted. And that's what happened in game one. Trey had 48 points 
The Hawks shot 50%. From a defensive standpoint for Milwaukee, that's unacceptable. Atlanta, and it, it was only eight three-pointers for the Hawks. It wasn't like it was just bombs away on Brook Lopez and drop coverage. They got pretty much everything they wanted. The only player on the Bucks that was slowing down Trey Young, well, I shouldn't frame it this way, the only time the Bucks were able to slow him down a little bit was when they went to the Giannis at the five lineup, which, by the way, would work fine. He can defend Clint Capella. Capella's not a post force. He's a role man. And he's a very good one because he's tall, athletic, long arm. He can get up high. I mean, he, he'll throw a hook shot over you. But it's not like Giannis is 6'5". What's Giannis now? 6'10"? When the hell did he stop growing? Ever? The Bucks need to be hitting more than eight three-pointers, for one. Drew Holiday had five of the eight, which means nobody else could throw a stone in the ocean. Chris Middleton needs to be better. Giannis is probably going to have... I figured the, the Hawks would do a better job packing the paint on defense, but Giannis may actually have a better series here because the Hawks are a bit more traditional in their size, where the Nets, with the injuries they suffered, they had like three power forwards on the floor for stretches, and that... I think made life a little bit tougher on Giannis because they could just throw power forwards into the paint and those guys can recover in a way that Clint Capella can't recover. And having Kevin Herter or Bogdan Bogdanovich in the paint isn't going to deter anyone. I know it's weird to say, but you, as, as poor as he's been defensively for a long time, you'd still rather have Blake Griffin guarding the rim than Kevin Herter. I know Herter's had some blocks in the playoffs, but Griffin's just a bigger guy. Same story for Jeff Green. You'd rather have those guys in the paint than like a Bogdan Bogdanovich. John Collins will suffice. Uh, I don't think he has quite the discipline of some of those guys on the Nets. And then Clint Capella is going to be the best rim protector that the Bucks have seen probably in the playoffs so far, although you could make an argument for Bam and Abayo. I think Capella is better at just straight rim protection and rebounding. So what do we expect here in Game 2? Well, looking at Game 1 once again, from a just sheer possessions standpoint, the Hawks, not many free throws in that game. That, I think, is worth noting. Uh, really didn't overachieve the pace by all that much, precisely because there weren't that many three-pointers and there weren't that many free throws. Same general story on the Milwaukee side. 102 shots attempted in that ball game, uh, but only underperformed on the Milwaukee side by a couple of points. Like they didn't, 46% got them pretty close to the mark, but again, not that many three-pointers, not that many free throws. This thing, this ball game, which actually moved pretty quick on a posted total of 225, cleared the mark by four points. It's still at 225, but again, I'm left with the same weird taste in my mouth of... Well, if we think Milwaukee makes the requisite defensive adjustments for Game 2, which weren't really rocket science, it was just go small. Go small ball and live with the fact that Clint Capella's going to have an advantage against you on the boards. Someone's going to have to really get into him on the box out. It might be someone like a Bobby Portis, honestly. You could probably get away with Portis at center, his rim protection stinks compared to Brooke Lopez, 
but at least he can chase people a little bit better. Or you just go with the Giannis at the five thing and be okay with the fact that Giannis is going to get beat up a little bit by Capella, by a, by a taller dude. Giannis, I think, is heavier. I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but there's no way the gap in weight between those two guys is all that much. How much does Giannis weigh? What, what's he listed at right now? I don't know that it's, it's super accurate, but what's Giannis's listed posted weight? 242. All right, let's, let's guess on Clint Capella. I, I got him at about that same number. I, I put Capella at about 250. I bet they're real close. What does Yahoo say? Capella is 240. They weigh the same damn amount. And Capella's one inch taller. Play him at the five, man. Giannis at the five. Just start him at the five. The hell with all the other stuff. The hell with it. Abandon ship. Because as much as I love Brooke Lopez, he's a massive liability in this series against a point guard who is a terrific pick-and-roll point guard. Make the adjustment, Milwaukee. Just, just do it. Don't screw around. So let's see. Let's see how many minutes Giannis gets at the five in this ballgame. It better be a bunch, or we can once again point to Coach Bud and say he's way too reticent, way too slow on implementing changes. Milwaukee offensively has options. I don't think the Hawks can slow them down the way that I'd venture to say slightly bigger teams can. They'll be fine. I mean, Atlanta did a pretty good job, actually, in game one of slowing down uh, everybody besides Drew and Giannis, basically. I guess Bobby Portis had a pretty good 15-minute stint, but Middleton was terrible. Middleton, this will be a tougher series for him just because of the personnel, because of the way the Hawks will guard Giannis generally. It'll be different than what you saw in the last round, guys that had no prayer against him. Hawks, I think, feel like they have one or two guys like a Solomon Hill that can kind of get up into a little bit. Um... But I don't see anything here that tells me the Bucks are going to run away with the ballgame. Eight is a huge number. I think I like this total more than the side, though. As much as I loved the, uh, as much as I liked, I should say, the Atlanta side in the last ballgame, that was the, the strong lean we gave out on Wednesday's podcast. Strong lean we're giving out on this one is, believe it or not, the over in-game live bet. So let's let's see what the Bucks are doing on defense. I am looking for one thing and one thing only, and that is how are the Bucks defending the Trey Young, Clint Capella pick and roll? Because the other ones are not that tough. If you put John Collins in pick and roll, Giannis, they'll switch it if they have to. Drew Holiday, he'll be fine against John Collins. Drew Holiday can guard anybody. Giannis can guard anybody. That's not a pairing you want to put into a pick and roll. Frankly, Middleton is fine too. But he's not Drew and he's not Giannis on defense. Those guys can guard basically one through five. So it's probably going to be putting Brooke Lopez, if he starts again, into a pick and roll. And let's see what the Bucks do. Their defense throughout the entire regular season, their fastball has been the drop coverage. That's just what we do. For the Bucks. We're the Bucks, we drop. If they keep that up, they're gonna get roasted. They're gonna get they're gonna get creamed. They won't slow down the Hawks enough to pull away in the basketball game. And if the Hawks are scoring, the Bucks are going to get into that same mindset. Score with them. 
I think we'll know a lot about how the ball game tonight, Friday night, is going to go within the first four minutes. And we'll make a call on a live bet then. I hope you guys are following me on Twitter. That is where we will do it. Last quick thought here before we wrap things up on this weekend pod. I wanted to go in-depth on that stuff, but I wanted to talk about, and I'm not sure how much detail we're going to go into on today's show, but I wanted to put this thought in all of your brains in the extreme short term, which is, what do we think these playoffs are doing to player fantasy values Namely, ADP, because I don't, we don't know what a player's fantasy value is going to be until he actually plays a ball game, but draft position. What do we think the playoffs are going to do to particular players' draft position going into next year? I'll use a couple of examples that came from the bubble last season. And it wasn't even the playoffs necessarily, but in the bubble... Devin Booker looked like a man among boys. They brought in Chris Paul and all of that evaporated, and Booker still got way overdrafted this year. Also, looking at the playoffs last year, uh, Jamal Murray, I think, dramatically increased his price tag on draft nights. And that one actually turned out to be the other side of the coin until he blew out his leg. Jamal Murray was top 30 this year on a per-game basis. He had turned a different type of corner. So I want you guys, and I'll do it with you, over the weekend to think about what we've seen in these playoffs so far. And you can think about each round of the playoffs to this point. Did anyone, like, think about the teams that we've seen involved. We can do just a very cursory analysis of it right now. In the Eastern Conference, what did we see out of the 76ers before they were eliminated? And will that change the way we assess draft position next year? Like, just for example, and I want to talk more about this next week when we have more time to explain bound upon it Ben Simmons what did the playoffs do to his fantasy value I mean he had a down regular season anyway so that was already going to drag his number down but I, listen I don't like punt free throw guys so there's probably very little that he could do at this point there's there's almost nothing that could happen to his ADP that would entice me into drafting him but damn if this isn't close to doing it the world hates Ben Simmons right now. He is uh, persona non grata. I don't think I've been able to use that on a podcast yet. He had a bad regular season. He had a terrible playoffs. He's drawing the ire of his teammates. He's in every single trade discussion that I have seen on the internet in the last four weeks, even before he got eliminated. So, what's up? By the way, he was outside, if you if you include the playoffs in his numbers this year, uh, he was actually, he, he pushed himself outside the top 100. I think he was like around 80 before the playoffs started, and that's obviously what we're going on, but it's, um, that's rough. 80, 90 range, somewhere in there. He'll still probably go earlier than that, but that's the kind of guy I really want us looking for. And then, 
take the flip side of that as well. Um, that's a good example of this. Someone perhaps in the Western Conference like uh, DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre Ayton, who's still playing right now, and he's having the playoff run of probably the season. This might be enough to get DeAndre Ayton drafted around 20 again next year, which, again, I listen, we talked about this a million times. He was a top 40 guy the second half of the season, and then by because he's been durable, he actually finished right around number 20 by totals. Is this playoff run going to make people think that this is who DeAndre Ayton is? That this force, who's willing to take more shots and do more things, that this is... The guy, actually, he's only taking 10.5 shots in the playoffs to 10 in the regular season, but he's shooting 72%. Is this going to drive the narrative? There are a lot of questions like this. Christophe Porzingis, Terrence Mann, Reggie Jackson, wherever he goes next, that need to be answered. Hey, did these playoffs... Mess up Rudy Gobert. Is he now uh, in the category of persona non grata? So we'll talk more about some of this stuff either next week or we can even wait until the playoffs are over. But I think this is actually really important to understand the, the public perception factor that goes into where guys get drafted. Next week, we will, of course, continue to cover the playoffs from a betting standpoint and just a this-is-fun reality, let's talk about the playoffs standpoint. We will also begin our journey through the NBA, one team at a time, breaking them down, what they did, what they didn't do, how we got to this point, and what to do with them going forward. Folks, I am Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Use HoopBall20 at Manscaped.com and clean your hairy butt up. Maybe that should be (laughs) the new slogan. I'm uh, at Dan Baspers on Twitter. Please do hit me up. I want to get that first non-sports podcast started, Hoopball. That's my new uh, weird little pet project, whatever the hell you want to call it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Back at you Monday morning. So long.